Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is David Benremo. He's the uh, founder and CEO of AFRED Health, A-I-F-R-E-D, health.com. David, how are you doing? I'm very well. Glad to be here. Yeah. Tell me about uh, AFRED Health or AIFRED Health. What do you guys do there? Yeah, so AFRED Health, we're a mental health AI company. Um, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to solve uh, one of the hardest problems in mental health, which is the treatment selection problem. Um, so everybody is, you know, all hung up on diagnosis. Um, everybody talks about diagnosis and diagnosing more people, and that's important. Um, but we've seen something happen in the last few years, which is that the need for services has grown exponentially. The number of people coming to get help has grown significantly, and the services are, if not at capacity, then reaching it. Uh, but the problem is that people don't get better fast enough. Um, and in fact, most patients who you treat, um, 33% of them will not get better after the first treatment. But we know that some people do much better with some treatments and other treatments. And here I'm including drugs and psychotherapies and all the other kinds of treatments as well. Um, so if we could select um, treatments for patients in a personalized way, we could probably get people better a lot faster. And that's what we're trying to do. So what kind of uh, treatments, just you know, so I have an understanding, like electroshock therapy or drugs or talk therapy? Or... All of it. All of the above. Um, we're probably oh, not wow. going to be able to have everything included at launch, um, but in a principled way, there's no reason why with enough data, we, we shouldn't be able to predict all those treatments. Right now, we've mostly worked with data on drugs and psychotherapy um, because that has the most, but we're hoping to add in electroshock therapy and other stimulation therapies as well, as well as more of the psychotherapies because right now we've only got um, mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most common one. So the typical success rate right now is this is like an average of what after so after the average, treatments? Sure. So after one treatment, the average success rate is about a third. Um, and after four treatments, uh, the best estimate we have is around 70%. Okay. So you, you want to, what's, what's your goal with AI or what do you think that the potential could be? What percentage and after how many treatments? Sure. So, I mean, ideally, you'd want to get it right after the first or second treatment uh, instead of, so most people are going to have to go through uh, two, three, or four. Um, and uh, that means that, you know, we and, and, and a lot of those people who don't get better after the fourth might have gotten better um, had they gotten something more effective earlier on, because the longer you're depressed, the less likely you are to get better. It sort of takes hold. Um, so, in fact, if you get the right treatment earlier on, it's possible that maybe you might get you might get better when otherwise you wouldn't have. So what we're hoping to get at is 75 percent treated right the first time, at least. Um, and then uh, the majority of people treated right by the second treatment. That's the hope. Um, we think it's possible uh, for a simple reason. Already, if you take doctors as they practice usually and you give them a treatment algorithm, which means you tell them, try this, then try this, then try that, you can jump your uh, success rates by 50%, so people get better 50% faster. Um, so we think that you know, with AI, we're, we're actually personalizing and choosing treatments for patients. We should be able to jump that up to 75% at least. Well, what are some of the factors that you think may, may be modulating whether a treatment works or not? 
I mean, there's so many things, and that's kind of why we want to use AI. Um, there's factors based on people's demographics, so you know where they're coming from, what their socioeconomic status, status is, how easy it is for them to access treatment. Um, that's one huge piece of it. Then there's side effects, which is another huge piece of it, and side effects are very different between different people, and it's hard to predict who will get what. Um, as a side effect, um, then there's sort of just the person's, the kind of depression they have, because we, we talk about depression as if it's sort of one disease, and it demonstrably isn't. It's just that we don't have any better way of talking about it yet, um, and we're not really sure how to classify it better. So if we're able to sort of figure out, you know, uh, different profiles of people and how they respond differently to, to different drugs and therapies, we should be able to, uh, you know, find those factors that are going to predict better response to one treatment versus another. Oh, well, that's interesting. What kind of depressions are there? I, mean, I, I didn't even know there was multiple kinds. But. So there's lots of different classifications, uh, and they're probably all wrong. That's the issue. Um, we've, you know, for example, for a long time, there was something called um, atypical depression. So uh, atypical depression is, you know, usually with depression, you you wake up really early, you have a lot, you have a loss of appetite, and um, you lose weight. And then with atypical depression, it's kind of the opposite. You'll um, you'll have uh, you know you'll sleep more than you should. You'll um, you'll you'll gain weight. You'll eat more than you should. It's still depression because it's the same symptoms, just it's going in the opposite direction. Um, and we used to, you know, there there was a lot of hope that by classifying these symptoms differently, you know, you'll be able to, you know, find treatments that work differently for them. Um, turns out that there may be some small effects, but they're not easy to reproduce, and we're not really sure how to use those classifications right now. Um, lots of people have anxiety with depression. A lot of people have anxiety with depression. In fact, probably most people with depression have anxiety. Anxiety isn't even in the diagnosis of uh, depression. So um, you know, there's lots of different subtypes and lots of different comorbidities. We're not really sure how to classify them effectively. You just know that if you look at the nine symptoms that are the symptoms of depression, um, you need five of them. You can mix and match them, and people who look completely different are both called, you know, depressed. Um, and that that's a problem. I mean, I, I'm a doctor, and that's something we see very often. Patients who come in, they have different symptoms. They're still technically depressed. Um, we try to treat them with the same thing. That's probably the wrong thing to do. Um, so the answer is we don't know what those subtypes are, and we hope that using AI we can actually start to find new clusters, and we're going to define those clusters in relation to response instead of in relation to just how to group the symptoms. And that's kind of cool, um, because then we can start saying, you know, instead of trying to just, you know, look at something and, and make, make an arbitrary classification as if we were, you know, looking at animals in the forest and, and trying to classify the animals based on their feathers or whatever, we'll say what actually matters is response, people getting better. Um, so let's classify them according to whether or not they're going to get better with different treatments. I can see why it's a tough problem because there's multiple kinds of depression or, you know, psychological problems. I mean, how many different kinds do you think there are that, you know, from it's, what you've seen really that just haven't been classified? Sure. I mean, it's it's really hard to say. Um, as a scientist, I'm always uh, skeptical about making claims. I mean, um, the thing is that, you know, it's probably the same disorder but just with you know the different constituent brain circuits um, uh, being differentially impaired in different kinds of people, or it may be a few different disorders, each with a few subtypes. Um, you know, I mean, classically, there's I don't know, maybe four or five different, uh, maybe six or seven uh, different depression subtypes with a few different class, uh, different specifiers in the uh, the DSM, which is our diagnostics manual. Um, are there more than that, potentially? I would say probably 
you know, there's at least at least two big categories, which are people who are kind of slowed down and people who are kind of agitated and anxious. Um, and then within those, there's, there's probably subtypes. Um, but again, it's difficult to say because the heterogeneity is really, really high. And then the factors that uh, influence depression, I mean, a lot of them seems like they'd have to be self-reported, which might be problematic or anecdotal or, you know, based on all kinds of nebulous factors. Some of them would probably be scientific, maybe like your gut microbiome or if you said your family history or uh, blood draws, that kind of thing. But it seems like a really tough project. What Any insights on how you're going to, how it's shaping up so far? Sure. I mean, actually, that's something uh, that we've been dealing with as a field for, you know, 50, 60, 100 years. Um, you know, we have developed long ago questionnaires and other measures to assess uh, these kinds of psychological sort of messier subjective findings. And these are questionnaires that are validated, they're reproducible, they work. Um, so it's actually not impossible and, in fact, frequently done to quantify people's self-reported symptoms uh, about all the things you just mentioned. So actually, um, one can use uh, even simple, you know, uh, categorical and continuous variables. You don't even have to go to natural language processing. You can just deal with variables that are collected on questionnaires and things. And those have previously been shown to be fairly predictive um, of uh, different things, uh, but they haven't been quite uh, predictive enough of response in a differential way, i.e. response to different treatments um, using classical statistics, which is why we're using deep learning to try and see if we can, you know, get into those questionnaires a bit more uh, and see what different uh, questions and different uh, factors combined with different biomarkers and different sort of quote-unquote objective features like family history um, and trauma history um, that, uh, that can be put together to better predict response specifically. So how far along are you in the project? Are you at the point where you have data and you're analyzing and are starting to see some exciting correlations or not yet? Yes. No, indeed we are. So we've gotten access to, to uh, quite a bit of data from the National Institutes of Mental Health and also from uh, Statistics Canada. Um, and we have some more data coming along from a few other sources, including some uh, researchers who've agreed to give us their data, which is very kind of them. Um, and uh, so, for example, we are able to predict, so we're interested in predicting outcome in terms of people getting better from depression, but also in terms of them, uh, the other sort of outcomes associated with depression, like suicide or side effects. Um, so, for example, we're able to predict the suicidal ideation, so people's thoughts about suicide, with about 70% accuracy um, in a uh, population sample from a mental health survey from Canada. And this is very exciting. Uh, we're able to predict across four different drugs um, with, uh, depending on, on, on which model we run, around 80% accuracy um, overall to say who's going to get better and who's not going to get better. And we can do those predictions for each of the drugs individually. Um, and that replicates sort of within the sample with, you know, tenfold cross-validation and between the samples. Um, so it's it's very robust finding. Uh, it's the best finding that we found in the literature to date. Um, and this is across four different commonly used uh, drugs or drug combinations. Um, so that's good proof that this technique works and that deep learning is probably able to outperform other statistical approaches in this kind of data because it's probably so complex and, and nonlinear and all the different interactions between the variables. Um, so we're very excited. Uh, the trick now is getting enough data to cover more treatments um, and getting the model to a place where it's going to be clinically useful.
Yeah, very interesting. I can see it makes a lot of sense. You, know, you won't have to waste time on treatments that won't work. That could have side effects. <clears throat> that could probably make the person more depressed, cost them more money, more time, all kinds of stuff. I mean, this would, exactly. You can see how this would help in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. What um, the focus is uh, is what is depression, or what is the focus? Is it just any psychiatric condition, or like, what do you think of the uh, the ones that have the the largest need, or the ones that you're focusing on? So I, I think the one that has the largest need, just because it's the most common, is depression. Um, it's the most common cause of disability on the planet. So not just in wow. Western countries, it is the most uh, important cause of disability. Um, and we thought it was going to be that in 2030, but it crept up on us and it became that more recently. Um, so depression is the biggest disease on the planet in terms of disability. Um so that's why we think it's it's the, the right one to start with. And it's also fairly common about, you know, one in nine people will be depressed at some point in their lives. And 322 million people more or less are depressed at any given time. So it's lots of people and it's everywhere. Um, and then, you know, that's what we're starting with. Uh, not because we necessarily think that, you know, um, there's something special about depression from the AI side. And we think that this can probably replicate it across all the different conditions. Um, but depression ha- was specifically attracted because, A, like I said, there's such a great need, that, need and it's so common. B, there's a specific problem, which is there's way too many different treatments, and none of them are sort of like beating any of the others out of the park. Like if there were, there's, you know, there's over a dozen drugs. Um, there's like five different major psychotherapies. There's three different major stimu- neurostimulation techniques, including electroshock therapy. And they're all kind of the same, except for electroshock therapy, which is the best by far, but it's harder to get access to and to use as a first-line treatment. Um, so, you know, there was a, there's a real need to make better decisions. And things like addictions, which is another huge problem, um, it's a little bit more difficult because there's not as many treatments to choose between. So maybe, you know, there, there's two or three different regimens that we could help choose between, but the sort of decision burden is not as high as in depression. Uh, in terms of AI's utility as a decision uh, support tool. There's other play- ways that I might be helpful in addictions. So our plan is to sort of go, you know, depression, uh, depression and anxiety probably next because they're so similar. Um, and then uh, to go to schizophrenia and other psychotic diseases, which are uh, not nearly as common, but are still in the top 10 causes of disability because they hit you when you're young and then you're basically disabled for life. Um, and um, and there's still lots of treatments with a lot more side effects than, de- than depression medication that you might want to help choose between. Um, and then we can go to things like addiction um, and uh, and uh, you know OCD and, and other other disorders. Uh, so the plan is to eventually you know get to everything, but uh, you know we want to be realistic and start with one thing at a time. Well, what it's, what you said the depression is the largest cause of disability on the on the planet, which is amazing. Any sense of the the amount of people that are affected by depression to the point of disability. So uh, to the point of disability, that I don't have an exact number for you, but I can tell you that, um, as I said, about 322 million people at any given point on the planet, like right now, there's 322 million people who are depressed. Um, are all of them necessarily disabled? No. Um, a n- great number of them will be. Um, and one in nine people will have depression over the course of their lives. So you have a you know an eleven percent chance of being depressed. I have an eleven percent chance of being depressed. Um, yeah, hmm. amazing. And it costs two hundred and ten billion dollars in the states every year. Uh, how much does it cost, sir? Two hundred and ten billion dollars in the states every year. 
Wow. It sounds like, yeah, I mean, this is like a super important project to help uh, find better treatments for people. What um, do you think you'll be able to get maybe up to 75% level on a first or second treatment versus what's going yeah, on that, now? That's what we're aiming for. Do you think that you'll see in the data, too, that there's uh, definitely a subset that seems to respond to nothing out there? And maybe uh, if you found that, what would you do with that data? So that's a great point. That's actually something we're, we're I mean, not hoping to find, because obviously it'd be better if there's something for everybody already. Um, but I do strongly believe that there is, in fact, going to be that subgroup. And that's actually super important. It's a really, really great point you bring up, because right now the pharma companies and a lot of other sort of research is, uh, or money rather, not research, money is abandoning uh, find, trying to find new treatments for depression and other psychiatric disorders. Uh, lots of you know uh, pharma companies have just closed their their neuropsychiatric um, research divisions because it's not profitable and the drugs are hard to the drugs are hard to find. And I think that part of that reason is because we've been treating you know what's what's not really one homogenous condition as one homogenous condition. So studying it is really difficult. If you're you know trying to study apples and oranges and and try and figure out how to make them both grow uh, perfectly. Um, they're different trees. You're not going to get them to both grow perfectly with the same regimen. Um, so, you know, I think that if we can actually really, really properly define who these people are who don't respond to anything out there, we'll be able to say things like, okay, these are the people who we should be focusing on for finding new treatments. Let's just get a group of these people who we, we know who they are now. Let's get a group of these people together. Let's study them intensively. Let's, let's, let's you know, let's figure out what for them gen on, on the genetic level, on the neuroimaging level, on the sort of a psychological level, what is it that, that is causing this uh, resistance to the existing treatments? And maybe that will let us then figure out a mechanism um, that can then point us in the direction of new treatments. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. It's going to be uh, really interesting when you when you find out this data. Do you think that um, if it works and you get good at it, that you'll then uh, approach pharma companies and say, hey, we've got this model that works for depression-type stuff. You know, why don't you license it and use it for all the drugs you're working on developing? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, there are several sort of ethical um, issues with partnering directly with pharma when we're a treatment selection company, um, because if you know we were to be perceived as you know partnering with one specific company, um, people might say, well, how do I know that your system isn't subtly gonna be recommending their drugs more often than it should be? Um, oh. So, but we do we do intend to use that information. So um, we might, for example, we we just might write a scientific paper and publish, um, and then say, you know, here's what we should be focusing on. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we have not figured out exactly uh, how and if we'll commercialize that specific piece of information, but we think it's a very important piece of information that the world needs to know, um, and it would be unethical to keep it to ourselves. Well, maybe the commercialization will come from another industry that's completely separate from what you do, but they can still benefit from it. Because I can see how yeah, the I mean, decision engine would help anybody that's uh, trying to figure out a complex problem. Yeah, the decision engine is very commercializable. Um, so, I mean, that that's our core business. We're going to be providing that to healthcare providers, to HMOs, to uh, individual clinicians, to telemedicine companies. We, we already have a contract with a, a telemedicine company in Montreal, actually, our first clients who we're going to be. So that, that is our business, um, and that's what we do, mm -hmm. providing that decision support. That's, that's sort of the commercial side of what we do. Um, but I, I was just talking about that specific piece of information. Once we have it, it's uh, kind of like a... 
a new IP, and then we have to decide what to do with it. Uh, and, and, but I mean, the actual product that we have is the decision support tool, which doesn't really rely on that piece of information. I can see weight loss could be huge if this could be applied to it and make some headway on it. That's like another problem that affects, I mean, yeah, I over a, really a billion people, I guess. Yeah, no, that weight loss, um, I mean, obesity, uh, as you say, is a huge problem, and it actually could be something we could apply the AI to. And considering that obesity in some situations can be considered a mental health problem, um, definitely it's something that we could, uh, we could, we could approach. Absolutely. So what, um, maybe just a couple of details on the AI itself. Uh, have you picked out models? Is it, is, do you feel like this is only possible recently because, you know, the advantage of deep learning? Anything you could say about the AI itself without giving away sure. the sauce, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I, I think I think honestly, deep learning is 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 very uh, crucial to this effort. I mean, um, we've had all the other machine learning um, approaches for years, and they've been somewhat successful, but not nearly to the same degree as what we've seen using deep learning. Um, I mean, it provides like a ten percent benefit over the best existing results already from what we're able to see. I mean, mind you, that's unpublished, so it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but from what we're able to see, it provides at least a 10% uh, jump in, in, in benefit in one of the uh, analyses we did compared to the same analysis done using other techniques in a previous study. Um, so, I mean, we think deep learning is huge, and it's huge for a very sort of simple reason. The um, deep learning is good at dealing with really complex relationships between variables. Um, not that other techniques aren't um, supposed to do that, but deep learning, because of its ability to represent the, the features and, and the weight, the nonlinear relationships between them, it really does a great job of capturing the complexity in the psychiatric data set. And um, basically, we found that that plus all the really good feature reduction tools you can play with in deep learning. Uh, to sort of figure out which features are most important and cut the rest um, are letting us get some really interesting results that are actually fairly interpretable when you actually look at what comes out of it. It's not a big confusing network that you can understand. You can actually look at the baseline features and it's, it, from a psychiatrist's perspective, it makes sense. Like you can understand sort of, oh, this feature, I get it. I might see why that might be important. Um, so it has a flexibility and a power that just we don't get with other techniques. Um, and basically, we're using, I mean, we have this published, or it's coming out soon, uh, deep learning, mostly stacked denoising autoencoders, uh, which is nice because it kind of gives the, um, the, uh, the, the, the network a chance to learn a little bit on the data before you start training it for an objective. So um, that's important. It's kind of like, you know, making it go through medical school before you ask it to treat a patient. Um, so, yeah, we, we think that uh, deep learning is really very important in this effort. It may not be the only technique that can do it. Um, there might be some Bayesian techniques that are, that are potentially really, really helpful, but you can, you know, use Bayesian techniques within, within deep learning. So it, I think it's uh, a very promising um, new, new technique for us. Any uh, surprises to you that have come out of the research so far in the AI work? Um, again, none of this is, we're working on publishing this stuff, so all of this is preliminary, but things like um, finding that um, uh, BMI, so your, your weight um, divided, divided by your height squared, is um, related to uh, suicidal thoughts, which sort of makes sense, but I, I hadn't been aware of that uh, previously. Um, the um, fact that you have different questions that are relevant to different drugs 
which is actually really exciting because if that wasn't the case, and if it was all the same questions predict, predicting all the different drugs, that would basically mean that there's no differences between them. They're all kind of the same thing. Um, yeah. The fact that there are different questions that we found relevant to different drugs means that there's actually something different going on and there might be some you know, useful ability to predict differences between different drugs. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's that's what I would say has been the most um, surprising in terms of the science of it. Well, very good. So, what uh, last question is? What's on the roadmap for this year and for the you know Great for the question. next twelve months? Yeah, I mean, so right now we're in a funding round. Uh, we're trying to put together some seed funding. Um, once that's done, um, we are you know we're going to be hiring uh, some full time staff. Um, and putting together uh, the the final team we need. We're going to be launching um, in October a uh, non AI version uh, of our uh, of our of our solution, uh, which is basically going to be um, a treatment algorithm. And when I say algorithm, I mean it in the old school way, uh, in terms of sort of like a steps that clinicians can follow to treat depression. Um, that's you know based on the best evidence. It's been peer reviewed by other um, by other psychiatrists outside of the company, and it's sort of based on the CANMATH 2016 guidelines, which are sort of like uh, some of the best guidelines in the world for depression treatment. Um, we think that that's going to help doctors treat depression better already. Um, and more, you know, from our perspective, one of the reasons we're, we're, we're putting it out there and we're planning to actually give it out for free to different uh, partners, um, the reason we're doing that is to collect data. Um, so we have lots of data from studies that, that we've gotten access to, but there's some things that we want more of uh, and some things that are missing in the studies. Um, so we need some you know, good data from clinical practices. That's the fastest way to get it. But clinical data is usually, you know, pardon my French, pretty crappy. Uh, doctors don't collect outcome measures when they should, and it's often the data quality is, is terrible. Um, so we want to collect data as quickly as possible, but we want it to be high-quality data. So if we actually give it a structure with our app, um, the data will be high quality. Um, and it also helps us, you know, sort of get people used to working with us, get people used to the brand and, and get it out there. So the idea is to, you know, and also get doctors used to doing decision support, uh, which a lot of doctors aren't used to using, in mental health at least. We're, it's very common in other parts of medicine. Um, not with AI, but just, you know, general tools. So we're going to get that out the door. And then hopefully by early next year, we'll be pilot, we're starting to pilot um, our, our AI model that's been trained on the data we've collected and the data that we already have uh, from different partners. Um, we'll be uh, doing first a trial of doctors to see how they interact with the system and just get a sense of if it's fitting into the workflow like we think it will. Um, right. And then once that's done, we're actually going to go and we're going to do a, a clinical trial to sort of prove that the AI, that the AI is safe and um, no worse than clinical practice, and we hope you know better than uh, than usual clinical practice. This will be one of the first, by the way, clinical trials uh, of an AI, um, uh, you know, for mental health treatment uh, decision support. So we've gotten approval for that, uh, conditional approval. We just have to send them a few more documents, but basically it, it, it's in the bag, um, and then we'll be able to actually test this, you know, in real life. Uh, and we also want to find a corporate partner. So that'll be on the academic side. We'd like to find a corporate partner. We're looking at a few different places um, who are interested in actually running a pilot as well. Um, and then after that, um, by the end of the year, uh, early 2020, hopefully, um, we hope to sort of be ready to launch uh, the first AI, the first version of the AI model, uh, fully validated and ready to go. Yeah, that'll be great. Very good. All right. So last question: What 
what's the best way for people to get in touch with you to uh, suggest collaboration or ask questions or find out more? Awesome, yeah. So we, that's really great. We, we, we love hearing questions, especially from patients. Um, and we are looking for collaboration with researchers and with institutions who are interested in this stuff. Um, so people can go to our website, which you mentioned before. It's AIFREDHealth.com. Uh, and there you can find our email. And if you send us an email to the website, we'll answer you back pretty quick. Okay, very good. Well, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'm glad someone's doing this kind of work. It's very needed. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you uh, for the invite. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.